Well, signs really are a, a, a powerful thing when you think about it, you know? I mean, just what we saw right there, nobody shared until I got up there any words at all. I mean, nobody was being verbose, nobody was talking, nobody was saying anything. Just the, the power of some signs, and we all got it, didn't we? Uh, you experience that when you're driving down the road. Look up here on the screen. Give me a click here, guys. You know, you experience signs all the time, right? And, and without any words being shared, at least verbally, you know exactly what to do when you're driving down the road. You know when to stop, when to yield, when the airport's coming up, when the, the, the road is going to turn and curve. Uh, you want to keep right when there's no bicycles out. I mean, think of all the road signs that you've seen and, and the brilliance of, of really how signs work. I mean, all of us understand street signs, at least most of the time, and they are simple, straightforward, and they tell us very quickly and efficiently where we need to go. Now, the only wrinkle that we have in this is that sometimes, and this will be important for us later as we go on this morning, signs can get too busy, can't they? In other words, you put too much on our signs. Look up here on the screen. This is an actual road sign that I found on the internet this week. I mean, can you imagine driving down the road and seeing this thing? I mean, what would you do in response to this? I mean, you're driving 35 miles per hour down the road and you go, all right, what time is it? And am I allowed to be here? Am I allowed to go this way? I mean, some signs get too busy. Or, or this next one's my favorite. I mean, this sign had to have been made by an engineer, this sign right here. I mean, you're traveling 60 miles per hour down the road, and that sign there, if you read it there, contains four different speed limits of what you're going to do over the next mile or so. And I just thought, some of your engineering types right now are saying, what's wrong with that sign, Jamie? You know, I mean, just makes sense to me, you know, or, or this is my favorite of them all. Look, at this is an actual sign uh, uh, somewhere. <laughs> Caution, no warning signs ahead. You know that the county lawyer had to have made that sign, right? Because only a lawyer would think of putting up a sign that says, caution, no signs ahead. So signs are an amazing thing. Uh, we all get them. We all get them very quickly, right away, even if they're kind of these busy signs. But most of them are simple, and they're a brilliant invention. And so let that sink in just a minute. There's something in life that you and I experience that is wordless, no words, and yet it communicates clearly and efficiently and even guides us on the right way to go. As we get down to the short strokes in our study of First Peter chapters 1 and 2 here, um, I want you to look up here on the screen because here's the main point of what Peter is going to challenge us with next. And now you're going to get the sign thing. And that is that he is going to tell us that actions speak louder than words and it's a great way to share your faith. Have you found that yet in life? He's going to tell us actions speak a lot louder than our words, and it's a great way to share our faith. This could be revolutionary for some of us here this morning. Now, let me pause before I go on any further and read you the text that we have this morning, and that's to tell you that for those of you who are like avid note-takers on the outline before you, um, there, you'll notice the three points underneath our main point. I'm not going to reference any of them. How do you like that? I'm not going to reference any of them. I do my outlines on my study breaks before I get down to some of the more intense exegesis. And in this church, they have to be in by Wednesday. I usually start my intense exegesis on Thursday. And so once in a while, it like all changes. Like I sit there and go, what was I thinking on my study break with an outline like that? And I just changed the whole thing. And that's a good thing because I'm trying to be as, as clear and, and to the text as I can. And so this week I sat there in my office on Friday and I thought, 
Now that outline, that thing's a loser outline. We're not going to use that one, but it already gone to print. So you're going to cross out all three of those points and just take notes as you feel led. Is that too hard to do? No, it's not. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. This is awesome. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh with wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, let's park in in front of this passage for a little bit, okay, and focus on what Peter is saying. Because when you look closely here, folks, uh, you're going to notice a very revealing and even intricate pattern of what Peter says we are supposed to do as followers of Christ. And then you're going to notice, however, a pattern of what they, meaning those that don't know Christ yet, are going to do in response and how God wants to work in and through all of this. In other words, this is what hit me this week. There's a pattern going on here, a couple of them, that have everything to do with this idea of of action speaking louder than words. And so look up here on the screen. As far as I can tell, what Peter tells us to do here, you and I as followers of Jesus, is this. We do good and then we avoid evil, and this in and of itself becomes a powerful witness. That's what Peter is saying to you and I, that we do good, and we avoid evil, and then God uses that as a powerful witness. And so notice that he begins in verse 12 there, the beginning of verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those who don't know Christ, honorable. It's fascinating, that word conduct here refers to one's general or whole lifestyle. As one Bible expert says, it's a day-to-day pattern of life. Uh, Paul uses the same word in Galatians 1.13 when he says this about his life. He says, for you have heard of my former life. That's the same word translated here, conduct. My former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And so using this word, don't miss that Paul is referring to his entire life before Christ, the whole of it all. And so when you understand that, you go, well, obviously then when Peter is using this word here, he's got to be referring to our entire life now in Christ. And then when he adds to let your entire life be honorable and filled with good deeds, we start to get what he's talking about here. He's talking about the kind of lifestyle that is worth writing home about. The kind of lifestyle that's very high in ethical standards and rich in love and deep in selflessness and consistent in service. I mean, don't miss what he's getting at here. He's saying, have the kind of conduct, have the kind of good behavior that rises above the melee of this world and has the power to actually turn heads when it comes to people looking at your life. It's the kind of conduct, for instance, that Billy Graham has been known for all of his life, the great evangelist. As a guy who, during his ministry, any hotel he'd walk into, he would immediately unplug the TV and not allow that thing to tempt him in any way. It's a kind of lifestyle that Mother Teresa has been known for when she was alive, from leaving her upper-middle-class upbringing to serve among the poorest and poor of poor in Calcutta. It's a kind of lifestyle that Ravi Zacharias, an Indian-born author and apologist for the Christian faith, is known for in being a gentleman kind and considerate to any and every person he meets, no matter what faith, religion, or worldview they might hold. You get the picture, folks. Peter's saying without words, simply live an honorable life backed up by good deeds, and this is going to speak volumes all on its own. 
And then to make sure that we fully understand, notice that he goes on to say to not just have positive actions that do good, but to also have protection-oriented actions, again, wordless, that avoid things as well. Look at verse 11. He says to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It's fascinating. That word abstain here actually has a history in its usage in the New Testament to not just mean avoid or abstain, but to avoid or abstain because you've already had enough or your fill of certain areas. In other words, it carries with it a picture that you're avoiding or abstaining from something because you just had enough of that area already. And so Jesus, for instance, used this word when he got down on the disciples for falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that? He says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. Pause right there. That word enough is the same word Peter uses here that we translate, translate abstain. Jesus says, it is enough. The hour has come, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And so he's saying, enough rest. You've had your fill of rest. It's time to stay awake so you can pray. And then Jesus uses this same word again later when he's talking to selfish and rich Selfish and hoarding rich people who strive for only comfort in their lives. We know some people like that. When he says, woe to you who are rich, for you're receiving your comfort in full. Same word, abstain there. And so he starts to get the idea. By using this word, Peter is saying this. He's saying, you've had your fill of engaging in plenty of worldly and sinful activities that everyone else does. So put them aside. Do them no longer. All they do is create a battle in your soul that vies for your attention and it creates a terrible witness. So get those things out of your life. And what are some of these things that Peter could be talking about? Well, Luke uses the same word in Acts chapter 15 verse 20 to talk about abstaining from idols and sexual immorality. That's kind of relevant today. Uh, Paul uses this word in 1 Thessalonians 5.22 to tell us to abstain from every form of evil, which like covers it all, doesn't it? And as I thought about it this week, I thought, you know, I'm not sure that you and I need a list of the things that we need to abstain from, right? And the reason is, is because if I don't miss my guess, if you and I were having a cup of coffee today, just sitting down and I'd say, hey, do you know what things God wants you personally to abstain from? You'd immediately nod your head yes, wouldn't you? Because we all know the things that tend to plague us individually, day in and day out. The things that we know are not becoming of us as followers of Jesus Christ. And so just think of what that is right now for you personally. And hear Peter's call. He's saying abstain. Avoid those things. And without words, you'll be sending a powerful message to those around you. We do good. We avoid evil. And like road signs that are simple and wordless, those around us read our lives and they start to get the message. That's what Peter is saying here. And then that leads us then to the second major pattern that Peter reveals to us in these two short verses here. And that is simply that that the first pattern is is obviously the one of we do good, we avoid evil, and 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 God uses that. But then notice another pattern here. That as we're doing that, they, meaning those who don't know Christ, are going to do something as well that though seemingly hurtful to us initially, in the end, is also going to be usable in the hands of God for His glory and goodness. Look up here on the screen. This is so revealing. He tells us that as we are doing good, they're going to talk about us and not talk about us very positively, mind you. 
And then as we continue to do good and avoid evil, they're going to see our actions over time and something is going to start to get through and then they're going to be drawn to God. That's the pattern that Peter gives us here. And don't miss the profound nature of what he's saying here. In other words, in a world where Christians always seem to be the ones talking, he says, no, not in this case. In this case, we're the ones doing action. They're the ones talking. Do you see that there? In this case, we're the ones just avoiding evil. They're the ones who are going to be doing all the looking. And as a result of that pattern brought together, God is in that. It says in verse 12 here, so that when they speak, not us but them, and when they see our good deeds, they're going to glorify God on the day of visitation. And so check out how this works, folks. Initially, what Peter is saying here is that because these folks aren't saved and haven't found Christ yet, they're going to be threatened by our good deeds and lifestyle and that we should expect this. Have you experienced that yet? In other words, initially, they're going to look at the things that we do, not really get it, also feel convicted by it because they're living awfully sinful and fallen lives and they don't understand the call of God in their lives yet. They think that morality and good deeds are just a joy kill. And so they're going to make fun of us and ridicule the life that we live. That's the first thing Peter says is going to happen here. And what you simply need to know, folks, is that this has been going on for thousands of years for God's people. It has. There's not been a culture yet that has lived for Christ and not initially in some way been ridiculed and even persecuted for the life they have lived. Not one. In fact, back in the New Testament culture, it's fascinating that the audience that Peter was initially writing to here was experiencing this as he was writing these words. And it's wild when you read the history books, what was actually happening to them back then and the profound misunderstandings that occurred in that first century culture. So for an example, uh, many back then looked at, the, looked at the Christian community and they called them incestuous by nature. They called them incestuous. You think, how could they have accused them of incest? Well, they called each other brother and sister and they greeted each other with a holy kiss. Remember that? And so as a result of that, the onlooking world didn't understand what that meant and they thought they were engaging in incest. And then they accused them of being carnivores, the history books tell us. You say, carnivores? What are you talking about? Well, have you ever heard of communion or the Lord's Supper where they take the body and blood of Christ and eat it? I mean, we're going to celebrate that later. The onlooking world did not understand that was a symbol and thought they were really doing that. And then they accused the first century church of sedition, of going against the governing authorities. Why? Because it was a corrupt government back then. And they were living righteous and holy and set-apart lives. And Nero, the leader of that time, didn't like that and started persecuting Christians. I mean, the first century and early church folks was constantly being ridiculed and persecuted for their behavior and people misunderstanding their godly deeds. And down through the centuries, this has been the pattern Christians have had to deal with. I mean, Quakers have been accused of not supporting national interests because they are pacifistic when it comes to war. During Jonathan Edwards' 18th century revivals, onlookers accused his people of barking like dogs as the Spirit moved powerfully in their lives. They didn't get it. Even in this last century, some of you remember this, fundamentalists in the last century accused of being anti-intellectual and mindless idiots because they refused to accept Darwinian evolution and other modernist claims. I mean, you look, any culture that has ever had any expression 
of Christ has initially not been received well in a fallen world that's doing its own thing. And all I know is that I've experienced this in my life as well. I remember when I first became a Christian, I've told you guys about this before, but um, when I first became a Christian, I came from a pretty um, secular and and non-Christian, non-churched at least, background. And uh, it was in my freshman year of college that I accepted Christ and I had a pretty Pauline conversion going from not really following God at all and living a pretty decadent lifestyle to then following Christ. And I'll never forget my first New Year's Eve as a born-again Christian. It was a, it was a profoundly lonely night. It started off great. I was back in Chagrin Falls with all my high school buddies because we were all on break from our freshman year of college. And about 10 o'clock that night, we were shooting pool and just having fun, hanging out. And at about 10.30, one of them said, hey, let's go to Damien's house where the big New Year's party was. Now, I knew what they were going to do at Damien's house. I knew they were going to do a lot of drinking, a lot of partying, a lot of carousing, and I thought, that's just not my life now. And and I also knew, and it didn't take me long as a Christian to figure this one out, that though Jesus hung around tax collectors and sinners all the time, which is like a good thing for us to do, he also didn't go about collecting taxes and sinning with them. Do we all understand the difference, right? And so I knew that that wasn't what I was supposed to do. And so I said to my buddies, hey, why don't we just hang out here? You know, just the guys for the night. We'll just hang out here and shoot pool and bring in the New Year's. And they looked at me like I was from Mars. They said, no, Jim, we're not going to hang out here. We're going to Damien's house. And I realized very quickly who my friends were because they all left me that night. I walked into my home, my parents' home in Chagrin there, and my dad was reading the paper. It's about 1030 at night. And he looks at me and says, what are you doing home? I said, well, all the friends are going out to party. I'm not doing that stuff anymore. And I, I went up to my bedroom with my dad just kind of shaking his head, thinking, what's gotten into my son? I went up to my bedroom, and, and I don't know if you guys remember this, but this was the day be- days before computers, the days before cable television, when we used to listen to these little boxes that didn't have visuals on them called radios. How many of you remember radios, right? And so I, uh, I turned on my radio, and the flagship Christian station in Cleveland is a Moody Bible Institute station called WCRF, and they were, they were broadcasting live from Urbana, Illinois. Some of you remember that, InterVarsity's every three-year conference on missions. And so I'm thinking, man, last year I'm partying like there's no tomorrow. This year, one year later, as a follower of Christ, I'm sitting lonely in my room at 10.30 on New Year's Eve listening to a bunch of Christian speakers singing hymns that I don't know. I thought, what has my life come to? And I felt more peace and more purpose than I'd ever have in my life up to that point. It was a profound, albeit lonely, time for me. And you know what it brought home to me? Is not to expect an onlooking world to initially stand up and applaud my desire to follow Jesus. They don't do that initially. They can't. They don't get it. And yet, don't miss, however, what Peter goes on to point out And that is simply that over time, though, in due course, as they begin, and here's the quote, to see your good deeds, he says they will start to get it. And some, he says, will even be led to glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, Paul's right there. What does that mean when he says that they will glorify God on the day of visitation? It's not really clear. And i got to let you know, Bible experts kind of bicker and spar over what this really means. 
Some Bible experts take this to mean that when these people die, that they're going to appear before the judgment seat of God, and then they're going to realize who's right, and they're going to give glory to God right before they're sent into a Christless eternity. In other words, they think they, they, they take this to mean the judgment seat of Christ that the Bible talks about. The only problem, however, with this interpretation is that this phrase here, day of visitation, is only used one other time in the Bible to refer to God's judgment in Isaiah 10.3, and it's not referring to this final judgment, but to a temporal judgment on Israel in the Old Testament. And as if this were not enough, what further complicates this judgment interpretation is that this word glorify, which appears almost 60 times in the New Testament, never and I mean never, refers to unbelievers glorifying God after they die. In fact, it's used the opposite way. In Revelation 16, 9, it tells us that when unbelievers die and are at that judgment seat, they're not giving glory to God. So that can't be what this means here in 1 Peter. And so as a result of this, what many Bible experts believe this day of visitation is referring to, now don't miss this, is simply the day when God visits an unbeliever when he or she trusts Christ for salvation because on that day they are indeed giving glory to God. In other words, they're suggesting that what Peter is saying here is that though they initially scoffed and laughed, that as they then saw the good deeds and the honorable conduct of the followers of Jesus, that this eventually led them to ask more questions about God and what He has for us. And then in finding the answers to these questions in Christ, they in turn find salvation and end up glorifying God. In other words, it's a salvific thing that Peter's talking about here. And I think that's precisely what he's getting at. So add all this up, folks. Look up here on the screen. We do good. We avoid evil. And it's a powerful witness. And as we're doing that, they're going to talk about us. Not friendly at first, but over time as they see our actions, the way God says it works is that they're going to be drawn to Him. And all i got to tell you is that I love this pattern that Peter lays out here. I love it. And the reason I love it is because for some reason Christians today think that we need to be constantly verbose, constantly talking. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, to many in the onlooking world, we just never shut up about our faith. I mean, we're constantly doing this and that and fighting the culture wars and other things. Not bad things to do, but we're constantly talking. And along comes Peter, and he says, No, stop talking so much and just act a bit and allow your actions to do your talking for you. He challenges us to trust God that He's going to draw others to Himself through our actions and at times through our talking. I mean, this certainly doesn't mean that we should never share our faith verbally or talk to others about God. I mean, don't hear that. Of course we should. And many New Testament passages tell us to. But listen, folks. In a world that cares much more about action than speaking, and you and I both know that's true, What Peter is challenging us to here is to let our actions speak louder than our words and to realize the absolute power of our witness when there are just a few signposts in our lives. Simple signs through our honorable conduct, through our abstinence. Simple signs that people read and say, I want what you got. God says that's the way evangelism at core is supposed to work. I look up here on the screen, give me another click here, guys. A few years back, I, I read a wonderful book by a pastor that I, I had known and known of his church, and the book was called Conspiracy of Kindness by Steve Shogren. 
Shogren's got a very interesting story. Steve had founded a church in Cincinnati, Ohio, way back in the early 1980s with just a, a few families. It was a very small church plant. And yet, over the years, this church called the Vineyard of Cincinnati, it was a, a vineyard plant a, out of John Wimber's movement out of California, this church became a, a very large and prominent church as it is today in Cincinnati. In fact, in Cincinnati today, the vineyard there is about the size of Scottsdale Bible Church, thousands of people there, and has had quite an influence in the Cincinnati area over the last 30 or so years. What's most fascinating about Shogren's story, however, is that when he founded this church, he founded it upon a unique vision that his church would always serve and serve in radical and head-turning kind of ways. In other words, he overdosed on this idea of acts of kindness from God's people. And you're saying, what are you talking about? Well, from the very early days, this church would just do anything and everything they could in culture, outside the walls of their church, to just serve others with acts of kindness. So, here are some of the things they've done over the years. They have set up tables at the local mall and offered free gift wrapping during Christmas season. They've offered free blood pressure screening at the mall. They've handed out bottled water at sporting events. They've gone door-to-door to mow lawns and do yard work for free. They've cleaned bathrooms for free at local gas stations. They've handed out popsicles on hot days in the park. They've gone door-to-door with CO2 or carbon monoxide detectors. They've offered free family photos at carnival events in the Cincinnati area just so that people can remember the event. They've done shopping assistance for extended care in nursing homes. They've, They've even offered free stamps outside the post office during tax season. I mean, anything that they can do to be kind to other people and show a little bit of help, give a cup of cold water, they'll do. They do the most zany things. They actually go to the mall and they take those carts that are all over the mall parking lot and they put them in the little rack for people. They stand outside self-serve car washes with towels and help people dry their cars. Are you getting the idea? I mean, anything they can do to show kindness to other people, they go out in little platoons from their huge church and just serve the community. And anytime anybody ever asks them, why are you doing these things, they hand them a card that simply says this, and I quote, just showing some kindness in the name of Jesus, Vineyard of Cincinnati. Just showing some kindness in the name of Jesus. Why are you doing this? Just showing some kindness in the name of Jesus over and over again. And for the last 30 years, this has rocked the Cincinnati area. And Steve wrote a book about it called The Conspiracy of Kindness. Let me ask you, do you think that when people would see and experience these acts of kindness, and even some of the more zany and outrageous ones, that at the very least they might wonder what these people are about? Do you think that maybe one of the reasons this church has grown over the years and won a lot of lost people to Christ is through this kind of kindness? I think so. In fact, my church back in Cleveland decided at one point to try to, um, to, to do some stuff like this. We never got as radical as the Vineyard Church in Cincinnati, but we started a ministry called Acts of Kindness because when I gave this illustration like I did to you to them back then, a couple of people got real excited about this. And so out of this ministry, we started to hand out water, water bottles at our local Blossom Time Parade. We would hand out back-to-school supplies to needy families in our community, and we had quite a few of them. We ran a health fair for inner city people and put 400 people through a health fair one Saturday. They even tried to do some of the more outrageous one one Sunday. I got a call from the Chagrin Falls police, I kid you not, because some of our people have been down putting up money in expired meters throughout the whole village of Chagrin Falls. 
and putting a card right on the meter saying, you know, from Fellowship Bible Church, you know, kindness in the name of Jesus. And the cop said, would you stop doing that? So at least it got their attention, all right? I mean, it's just amazing what happens when you start to do some acts of kindness. And probably the most touching thing to me is that I saw people's lives change through this. The woman that headed up this ministry, her name was Joan. And Joan is wired like, like many of you tend to be. And that's that it's harder for her to share her faith verbally than it is to love somebody in the name of Jesus. And so one of the reasons that she started this ministry is so that she could share the love of Jesus in very tangible ways. And you need to know about Joan is that she would do this whether there's a ministry or not. So one day she was jogging through her neighborhood. And as she was jogging through the neighborhood, she noticed a garage sale. And like most people, had to stop at the garage sale. And as she did, she found out that her neighbor, Connie, had been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, had been given only a few months to live, and so Connie was having a garage sale to get rid of some of her things. Joan was moved by that and knew that there were some financial needs associated with this, so she got a bunch of neighbors together, and they put on a huge garage sale in Connie's name, and they raised a bunch of money and gave it to Connie. Connie was so moved by that act of kindness that she started to hang around Joan in the last days of her life. And Joan would make her meals and go over and talk with her. And as you can imagine, eventually, Connie would just say, what's driving you in this? What's going on? And Joan would just tell her, you know, kindness in the name of Jesus. I'm a Christian. And, and, and eventually, Connie wanted to know more. Now, now, Joan is very much like a lot of you. And she's a, a big chicken when it comes to sharing her faith. And so she did what some of you do. And that is that she made an appointment for Connie to see me. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's what some of you do. You, you say, I don't want to share my faith, but pastor has to he's paid to so jamie is is going to share his faith and so i'll never forget the day that connie and joan came in to see me and uh and i shared the gospel with connie and i said to her dear are you ready to receive christ in these final days of your life and she looked up with me with those hollow eyes and said absolutely yes i want to receive christ and she accepted christ right there in my office i got the privilege to then go on and do connie's funeral and the ripple effects of just that simple act of kindness that Joan did through seeing Connie come to the Lord, through seeing her husband and her son ministered to in profound ways, all her friends at the funeral. I mean, it was just profound what God did in the hands of one woman who decided to do just some kind acts to those in need. And that's how this works, folks. When we take the courage, when we have the fortitude and the love for those around us and the love for God, to just serve those with acts of kindness, it literally not only turns heads, but it can change lives. I know some of you uh, want to do more of this in our church here. Uh, One of the things I love about Scottsdale Bible Church is that we're not just here to serve ourselves or even our immediate community, but but to serve broadly in the Phoenix area. Uh, There's a table set up after the service today where our outreach department is there. And they've put together a wonderful little booklet you might want to consider picking up called EPICS. It stands for Engaging People in Community Service. And what it is, this is such a wonderful gift from your church to you, is that Berta and her team have gone out and networked with a bunch of Christian organizations in the Phoenix area. And they've compiled a book of what these organizations do and how you can get involved in serving in and through them. So everything from shelters to working with single moms to working with the American Indian community. I mean, anything we can do just to serve people in the name of Jesus, they put together a book that helps you do that. And so maybe as an application point, some of you today might want to go out and stop by the table and find out what you can do. Or maybe at the very least, 
And this is the prayer I had for the first service. Maybe the very least, just start serving where God has you each moment of each day. In other words, for those of you who aren't very kind, (laughs) maybe start being more kind to those around you. For those of you who don't always demonstrate patience, maybe ask God to help you be unusually patient with those around you. For those of you who who are too busy and maybe high-powered to serve in small areas, maybe start serving those around you. i never forget in the very large church that I served in when I first came out of seminary, they once had in their annual magazine, like our Compass thing, they had a magazine that came out actually quarterly. It showed a, a, a guy washing this huge window with the light shining through. And it was the cover story. And when you went inside and read it, you found out that this guy was the CEO of a huge company in the Chicagoland area. I mean, multi-billion dollar company, the CEO. And yet his job at this church that I interned in was that every Saturday he would take two hours and he would come in and he would wash windows. Why would he do that? Because it was his way to serve and give back to God. And it was his way to keep himself humble and remind himself there is no task. Jesus washed feet for crying out loud. There is no task too small for a servant of God. Maybe that's what some of you need to be about more. Just finding small ways to serve those around you. See what God does when you do that. We live in such a hurting world. Have you noticed that? I mean, even in places like Scottsdale here, I mean, Scottsdale's very good at hiding the fact that we're hurting. It's an upper-middle-class, whitewashed kind of culture. And we tend to hide behind our things. We tend to hide behind our money and our great jobs and all that stuff. But make no mistake, you know what people are made of. As we talked about a few weeks ago, we're just jars of clay with the treasure of God's Spirit inside of us. The reality is we're fragile and we're hurting. And the kindness... And the serving that God wants us to do can break through all of that veneer to the heart of where people really want. And that's to know God in meaningful ways. And we can do it. And I can't wait to see what God does as more and more and more of us take up the the towel of serving and start to serve those around us. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that in a world in which Christians are known for being very verbose and talking all the time that all of a sudden Peter comes along and gives us a clarion call, a challenge really, to uh, be people who stop talking and start acting a bit more. And God, I thank you that you use words like honorable and good deeds and abstain and words that are very challenging to us that cause us to get creative and think about how we might be able to allow our actions and deeds to to show a bit more in, in our sphere of influence. And Father, if I don't miss my guess, there's not one person here this morning who in some way does not want to serve you in a profound way, who doesn't want to be used by you to affect change in the world around them. And so, Father, I pray that as we each give some thought to how we're going to capitalize on this, whether it's through some ministry that's, designed, that's written about in the Epics book, or Lord's finding a place of service here, or just blooming where we're planted in uh, the culture and the sphere of influence you put us in, God, help us to be the kind of people who are higher on action. And as a result of that, then watch the world around us eventually take heed and want to know more about this Jesus that we serve. God, we're entering into a time of communion right now. We pray that you receive this time and you might be honored and even glorified. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.